1: Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, and yes, I'm your social worker with the microphone. Uh, You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is author and life transition coach Sherry Samitin. Her new book is Facing the Finish, a Roadmap for Aging Parents and Adult Children. Welcome to the show, Sherry. Nice to have you on this morning.
2: Good morning, and thank you so much for having me
1: you are a life transition coach and author obviously this is your new book uh and in the book you say planning you know we are age, a roadmap for aging parents and i think one of the things that you say in your book that uh trying to face four parents and their children uh who are usually middle-aged children uh talking about end of life transition can be very worrisome people in a social worker, in my experience, don't really want to deal with this either emotionally or even in terms of uh, getting their finances in order. It's a very difficult thing to think about, even the title of your book, you know, um, Facing the Finish. (laughs) Uh, Who wants to talk about Facing the Finish? But that's what we're going to do today. So you say that if we talk about it, do something about it, it will be less stressful for those who are facing the finish and those who are helping them to do that.
2: Absolutely. You know, when you start the conversation early and often um, and kind of make it a part of the fabric of your family dialogue, then things don't have to be addressed in a crisis. And I'm a big believer that when you don't have to make decisions in a crisis, um, number one, you probably make better decisions. And number two, Even those in your family who may not entirely agree or agree at all at least usually have had the opportunity to weigh in, be heard, um, and understand the process you went through to reach your decision, and that leads to less stress for everyone.
1: But Sherry, when you're talking talking about these issues and actually doing something about it, getting your finances in order may be one thing. At what point do you do that? You don't want to do it in a crisis when all of a sudden your elderly parent, there has to be a decision has to be made whether go to assisted living facility, live in his or own, her own house, or come to your house. Don't wait till that happens. Don't wait till the crisis. So when do you begin to talk about these things?
2: Well, I think everyone who's frankly over the age of 18 and has any responsibilities <laughs> for other people or financial responsibilities really should have things in order and be planning for and talking about, uh, these important transitions because none of us know what's going to happen when we walk out in the street, you know, later today. So I, I think it's never too early to start practically um i think as people begin to transition from the world of work and raising their families and so on into what we've historically called the retirement years although so many people aren't truly retiring anymore but in that transition in your 60s perhaps early 70s realistically it's time
1: well you say 60s early 70s are these is this population Is this the population that's going to be taking care of the older population, or is that the population that's dying?
2: Well, no, that's the population coming into the years where often they are juggling taking care of their own parents who may be in their 90s, um, as well as facing the reality that they were planning perhaps to live into their 80s, and now they need to think about living into their 90s or beyond, and they need to make sure that they have the resources available that will allow them to do so.
1: Well, if you start when you're, let's say, 18, you just start talking about this, I assume. You don't start actually putting things down on paper, do you? Because it, it evolves. If Let's say you're an 18-year-old. Let's talk about the different generations. You said you need to be able to deal with these issues, and you start when you're 18 years old. Let's
2: Absolutely. Be specific. I'll what give you a do great do? example. When my older son left for college a couple of years ago, he's 22 now, um, he was going to a different state. And we had an attorney draft for him um, a power of attorney document and a healthcare surrogate document and advance directives so he could name who would make decisions for him if he couldn't. Because despite the fact that he still looked like a teenager and sounded like a teenager, if, God forbid, he had been in an accident and we had gotten a call, as his parents, we had no legal authority because he was over 18. He's an adult.
1: How does that work in reverse? Okay, I understand that. So he's moving to another state, and you you get the papers in order so that you can, uh, God forbid something does happen, you will be able to to take over and have power of attorney. Does it work in the opposite way, too? He's 18 years old. He's leaving his older parents, 40s, 50s, or 60s, whatever you were. Um, How does that work in reverse? Let's say something happens to you.
2: Well, exactly. And so really since the time um, that I had my kids, Um, I've had those documents in place and obviously didn't name the children as those people because they were minors, Um, and even now I have not named my children because they're still young. They're 18 and 22, and they don't have the life experience to be burdened with those kind of decisions. But not long from now I probably will update my documents to reflect um, my older son now and eventually my younger son of having these important responsibilities.
1: If we start early, as you 're saying, I think you have to get your mind around it, and that 's what I hear you saying, and it doesn 't become something that, in later years you 're terrified of addressing because it's and maybe it doesn 't even become so end of life as you 're describing it. If you kind of do it in the beginning of life that you 're addressing these issues of uh power of attorney, health care proxy, uh who you 're going to leave your monies to all of those things. if you start out discussing it in the family very early then it doesn't become this kind of crisis-oriented situation later on in life, both emotionally and practically.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. And I, I kind of refer to this, this life transition plan, as I call it, as an owner's manual for a life. Um, when you're young and your affairs are simple, it's a simple owner's manual, and as you're older and things are more complex and perhaps there's blended families involved and in various generations, it may be a pretty, pretty complicated owner's manual. But, I mean, think about it. We have an owner's manual for our car, for our computer, our dishwasher, pretty much anything with moving parts. Why not one for ourselves?
1: I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that we have to begin the dialogue, begin talking about it. And as you say, it does happen very often just in crises. And, uh, you know, I'm of that middle generation where I have, and my friends, older parents, and um, many of them haven't done the kind of planning that you're talking about. Uh, I mean, things actually do change. You may be 60, your mother may be 80 or 85. You, you know, let's let's be very specific maybe in terms of what happens in later life, um, because you do address these issues of, like, choosing the right caregiver, and as I mentioned earlier, living at home with the family, senior citizen housing. I mean, these are all issues that my friends are having to, to deal with and to tackle. And usually, unfortunately, as you say, it's in a crisis situation. They haven't been planning ahead for this. I, I well, think about maybe just in our culture we haven't been planning ahead that people live so long and live fairly healthy, so you have all these new issues to address.
2: That's exactly right. And what I find when I'm working with families is, unfortunately, it's a crisis that most often brings people to my doorstep. Um, You know, they got the call from 1,500 miles away that mom fell and broke her hip. We fixed her hip, and she's okay now. She's going to go to rehab, but she can't go home after that. What do you want us to do? And often you get that call with a few days or maybe, if you're lucky, a couple of weeks' notice. And you have to begin to scramble very often from long distance while you're in the midst of your own life to figure out even what mom can afford or whether she has long-term care insurance or veterans benefits or, you know, what kind of resources are there? You have no idea.
1: You know, sometimes, and this is understandable, I mean, you have older people who, I mean, they're married, they've, they've had... Spouse, maybe the spouse isn't living, maybe or partner, maybe he or she or isn't or is living. It, but they want to maintain their own privacy too, and sometimes they're not so anxious to reveal as you're talking about. Well, what are my over the years like? What their finances are, and uh, what they're able to do with them, and how they plan long term or haven't planned long term. So suddenly you're thrown in a situation where. You know, as you say, mom's like in California and you're in New York, and I have no idea what her financial situation is and what we can do or what's available for her specifically. So you got to get over that, too, because people don't like to talk about money, I think, whether they're 40, 50, 60, 70, or
2: 80. Well, and, and that's why I say to people, if I'm speaking with groups of older adults, one of the questions I'll ask right at the beginning is, how many of you want your kids in your business? And, of course, nobody raises their hand because nobody wants to give up their independence and have their kids in their business. And then the next question I ask is, so how many of you have created a life transition plan so that your kids don't have to be in your business until they do? But when they do, they have the information they need in order to do what you would have done in that situation. And so that's really what I advocate is, it's fine if you don't want your kids to have access to the plan or know about the details, but all they need to know is that there is a plan and either where it is or who to call to access it when the time comes.
1: Let's uh, give us a perf- an example, like a basic life transition plan.
2: So, a basic life transition plan will have the obvious so, listing of what you have, your assets, your liabilities, which is what you owe. So account numbers for mortgages or credit cards, um, account numbers for bank accounts or investment accounts, your income, what's coming in and where does it come from, um, your outflows, you know your big major recurring expenses and how you pay them. Are they automatically paid? Do you pay them manually each month? You know, just kind of, kind of where do they find that information? Um, you need your legal affairs in order, as we were talking about power of attorney. Healthcare surrogate, advanced directives, a will, um, and if appropriate, a trust and other things like that. Um, but then it goes way beyond that. Like, let's say you have a dog. When EMS takes you off to the emergency room with your heart attack, Fifi is left behind looking at those really good-looking paramedics. But those guys are not coming back to feed her at 6 o'clock. So somebody needs to know that she's there and what she eats and where you keep it and who to call to take care of her
1: all right that's very specific and what i'm assuming that you would uh, i 'm asking you the question I guess is what one has to do then you what you you update this this uh, life transition plan. What every year, every couple of years, or so when something significant I, I recommend,
2: changes. Right. I recommend that people update the plan at least annually, or when there's other many, major changes. So a birth in the family, a death in the family, a divorce, a serious medical illness or disability. If there's if there's an event or something that's important, you may want to update it more often. And that's also the time to think about final wishes, because that's another place that I see families spend a huge amount of money and stress unnecessarily. And I'll I'll, I'll give you a great example. When I do a life transition plan, we get to the meeting, which is the end-of-life discussion, um, and many of my clients actually have fun with that. So I had a couple, and they were sitting with me, and the lady said, I know exactly what I want. And I said, okay, shoot, and I was ready to document it. She looked at her husband. She said, I have a white garment bag in the back of my closet, inside of which is what I want to be buried in. She looks to me and she says, now it's a size four, honey. And this was a big lady. And she looks back at her husband and she says, you tell that undertaker to cut it up the back and stuff me in. (laughs) Then she looks at me and she said, and you make sure he puts in my obituary that she was buried in a size four.
1: We I, all I love it. It's laugh. so appropriate that you're telling me this. I, it's so funny that you are telling me this, uh, Sherry, because I've always said to, I have three boys, and kind of the standing joke, I'm little and I wear a size four, and I'm always saying, you know, you can't bury me. If I'm not a size four, you have to wait, because I don't want oh, to that, be buried in anything but a size four. So it's very funny that you bring that up as an example.
2: Exactly. And then and then I looked at the husband and I said to him, so do you know what you want? And he said, I just want one thing. I said, what's that? He said, I want them to play and the saints go marching in. And she said, they don't allow that at our church. And totally deadpan, he looked right at her and he said, then you better find another church.
1: Well, then it really comes out, I guess, all the uh, when you do these plans, all issues come out, right? Things, misunderstandings, or even not understanding, or um, so it really is critical to do this, I, I, um, obviously, when the person's alive, right, because your partner who or whomever or children are going to make decisions you probably or may not want to have done at all. Like you said, that's you better right. do it at a, yeah.
2: I and, mean, and the hardest discussions I have are with the older adults who say, I don't care, I won't be here anymore, let them decide. And. That's really difficult because they're not doing anyone a favor because I've seen so many times where there may be two or three kids and the time comes and and we're standing at the funeral home trying to make a decision and one's worried about what the relatives are going to say if they don't choose the most expensive casket Um, and another's worried about how they're all going to pay for it because, you know, they don't have any idea what, what mom's resources are. Um, And and it leads to um, a huge amount of stress and potentially fighting among those who are left behind to abdicate that decision.
1: I think that's key. That was going to be my next question because I think that's really true. If you have one or more children in the family, the more specific you can be about how you want all these issues we've been talking about, your finances be buried, et cetera. It really does not just alleviate the stress. I've seen families break up, you know, siblings not talk to each other after they bury mom or dad because the, these issues become so toxic. Whereas if the parent, like you're saying, had just said, you know, I want a, a pine coffin, don't spend. I don't need a mahogany coffin, done. The kids aren't going to argue about that. And, and sometimes it's just a small issue like that that can
2: really break up a sibling relationships and family relationships. Well, it's so true, and the other beautiful thing about doing a life transition plan is it can have the unintended consequence of doing exactly the opposite. So I was working with a a gentleman whose wife now had Alzheimer's disease, and their three girls, as he called them, now these girls were in their 60s, um, had not spoken to one another in 20 years. And as a result of doing this plan, the dad called a family meeting and had me facilitate. And the girls were summoned to this family meeting, and after a lot of uh, back and forth over many months, they agreed to show up. So we had, for the first time, the three girls at the same table with their dad, and they actually got along. They behaved, probably because there was an outsider there. But after the meeting, they then all went to mom and took mom out for lunch. And this was the first time in 20 years this family had been around the same table and broken bread. And the father came outside to me in the parking lot and burst into tears. And he said, the plan was important, but this is what it was about.
1: And that's an unexpected, uh, I guess, an uh, unexpected event. That's something that I wouldn't, does it happen often? Or is that something that would you say is unique? I mean, I know you've had a lot lot of experience doing these kinds of things. Uh, you know, life transition plans, but does this, is this the only time it's happened? Because it seems no, to me. No, yeah. there
2: are positive, what I call unintended consequences frequently um, that result from a process of doing the planning. So what I, what I tell people is the product's the product, the binder, the flash drive, whatever form it takes at the end, that's the product, and that's why you did it, and that's nice and it's important, but it's the process that gets you there. That often allows you to mend relationships or realize that you want or need to create new ones, um, and that happens a lot
1: as a well you are a i 'm describing it again life transition coach. is there training for that? Are there lots of you out there? I, I mean uh, obviously we're recommending that listeners get your book um, facing the finish, but uh, are, are there many books out there? And um, I want to mention your, your website, FacingTheFinish.com, for more information about the book and chariots. But is, is there a group? Um, are you social workers, psychologists? What's the training? What do you need to do to be a part of this profession?
2: Well, well, it's interesting because it's not one profession, and actually that's one of my missions is to figure out how to train and certify people to do this um, this mishmash of what I do, because as you as you say, there's a social work component to it. There's a, a almost a mediation or dispute resolution component. Um, there's a day to day money management component. Um, my background is business and executive coaching, and and you know I came to this because I was living in Florida in a place where there's so many older adults um, that that don't have their families anywhere nearby, and they became my friends and started. Um, asking me for this kind of help, and I really realized that there was a need, and thought to fill the need.
1: Right, that's how, that's how you came into the pictures, uh, and, and how you got into this is really from a business perspective, and I suppose lawyers as well. So, is but what I'm saying is, is there a, uh, a cons- consortium or an association of of these kinds Not of coaches? Yet.
2: Yes. Not yet, so there's, there's geriatric care managers who really handle the medical side of things. There's daily money managers, of which I'm one, and we do have an American Association of Daily Money Managers um, to handle the day-to-day managing the mail, paying the bills, dealing with insurance, and those kinds of things. There are mediators who specialize in elder issues, and there's an association of them so there's, there's lots of people who touch pieces of the puzzle. There are very few who actually put the pieces together and act, as I do like, almost like the conductor of the orchestra.
1: Which is what we need, because I think a lot of people are able to face certain issues. I mean, there are those who will say, okay, I have my finances in order, and, uh, and that's enough. But they haven't dealt with the rest of the decision making stuff that involves a lot of emotional stuff, family dynamics, getting families together, and everybody has their strengths, like different families, but, so you're putting the whole thing together, and it's kind of, I'm not surprised you come from a business background, because as I hear you, it sounds like you want to make it business as usual, not something that's out of the ordinary. It's business, this is what we do. Just like you have a will, this is something that you need to do. Or you have a marriage contract or, whatever, or a divorce decree, this is the same kind of thing. You put it in that kind of a category.
2: I do, and I put it in the kind of category of every kid in middle school should learn, you know, how to use credit properly and how to manage their finances and what a budget is. You know, there's just certain life skills that we kind of skip over.
1: Sherry, what do you do about, and I kind of relate this more, I guess, to medical stuff, but when I was uh, reading your book and I was thinking about this, that I don't want to spend my life where I'm healthy and alive and living. I could spend my whole time, for instance, let's just take the medical arena, getting tested for every possible disease I could get tested for, going to every single doctor I could go to to make sure that I don't have a disease or a condition. So I'm spending my healthy, good life. Doing all this medical stuff, uh, is it would be the same thing for this? I don't want to spend my life now and my, let's say, my parents' lives, uh, focusing on the finish when I should be focusing on the present.
2: Well, and you don't have to because if you do a good job of creating your owner's manual once, it's a question of updating it. And often clients will say to me, well, how do I, how do I do that? And I, I have a really simple way I suggest they do it. I say, get a little spiral notebook and keep it in a place that you are often. So for a lot of people, that's the kitchen. Uh, some people, it's the bedside table. But it's, it's a place where they'll see it. Don't put it away in a drawer, but put, put it, leave it out. And the only things you write in that spiral notebook are things you want to remember are important for updating your plan. And then pick that up once a year and update your plan. Or if you're working with someone to do it, hand it to them and let them help you update your plan. But What's been the response not, to this?
1: I mean, that sounds very practical, easy. It just uh, can become just an integral part of anyone's life with your little spiral notebook. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Uh, do you get a lot of resistance among colleagues or uh, resistance among uh, people who are trying to do this or... But, you know, I mean, you could talk about this, I think you mentioned, you can talk about this in middle school. You can talk about this in high school, in elementary school. I mean, if we are a culture where people are the average age or the average lifespan is going to be 90 years old, we need to address these issues.
2: Right. And the the truth is when I have somebody who has has done their plan um, and taken that initial step, what I find is I call it the best gift you can give. The best gift you can give yourself and your family. And In fact, I've had some people give me as a gift to their loved one and say, for your birthday, I'm giving you a life transition planning process with Sherry. You know, that's happened before, actually. I've been wrapped up with a bow. But um, once people make the decision to do it, um, number one, we get it done. They finish, and they feel really good when it's done. And number two, they're willing to keep it up to date because otherwise in two, or three years it's obsolete. And what was the point? Nobody wants to do it all again.
1: I think the biggest step, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, is to get over the, it's the emotional. Once I get over the emotional part that I'm doing something for facing the end, whether it's my end or my parents' end or my children or anything, um, it, get, once I get over that hurdle, as you say, then I can have the spiral notebook and it can be business as usual. But to me, getting over the emotional piece that you're dealing with, it's hard to think of your own mortality. I mean, that's very difficult. Uh, And I think, to me, that's kind of the biggest hurdle.
2: You're right about that. And often it's because of something bad that happens to someone we love or someone we know um, that causes people to take the step to do this. So it's it's the horrible story you heard at work yesterday Um, about, you know, your colleague's husband who suffered a a ruptured aneurysm and died, you know, within a minute um, at age 42 with two little kids. Um, You hear a story like that and see the aftermath of it, and that's when many people say, I don't want that to happen to me.
1: Well, one of the things that I'm quoting you, nobody gets out of life without dying. We have to face that. That's what happens. How we go, how it happens, we don't know. So we do need to be prepared. But somehow we think we are going to be able to not sort of, you know, death and taxes. We, we there's something in our mindset, I think, um, not just culturally, but kind of it's a universal thing. We are going to some, we're going to be the person who's going to make it out of here alive. <laughs> That's and so true. We're not. <laughs>
2: That's that's so true that's yeah. that, that you know there's only uh, it's funny because I was speaking at a at a an event um a week or so ago, and the guy before me was this physician who talked about wellness and you know not health care but well care and um the importance of taking care of yourself and and all of that and that was great, and he was done, and I got up and i said well i don 't want to be debbie downer here but even if you do everything that Dr. So-and-so just suggested you do, I've got a secret to tell you, and that is you're still going to leave. Yeah.
1: And that, that's exactly, and that's what we don't want to hear, but that's the truth. And I guess maybe the more we hear it, the more we'll be able to accept it. Who knows, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple minutes left. Facingthefinish.com is the website you can go to if you want to know more about uh, Sherry's book, more about you. Um, I'm assuming, do you do uh, speak across the country, workshops and and, and lectures and things?
2: I do, and and I've also created a workbook that goes with Facing the Finish, um, which is available as a PDF download from the website, and I'd like to offer your listeners um, a a discount if they use the promo code RADIO, R-A-D-I-O, they will get a 20% discount on anything they buy directly from me on the website.
1: Terrific. It's been great talking to you, very practical advice, uh, one that obviously we should all follow, and uh, again, com, and uh, we've been talking to Sherry Samitin, and uh, that's her new book, Facing the Finish. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to take a short break. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to com, World Talk Radio. Uh, we'll be back
3: in a minute. Don't go away. you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station.
0: VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, My next guest this morning is Catherine Lorenz. Catherine is president of the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation. In 2012, Forbes magazine named Catherine One to Watch as an upcoming face in philanthropy. She also serves on the board of directors of the Environmental Defense Fund, the Institute for Philanthropy, and the Association of Small Foundations. And our topic today is exactly that, philanthropy. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Catherine.
4: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about a really important topic—an
1: extremely important topic. Because, as I understand it, there's going to be a trillion dollars worth of assets that the millennials are going to have to are going to inherit, and they're going to have to figure out what they're going to do with those monies. And hopefully, they're going to be philanthropic. So, we'll talk about some of the ways they can do that. I just want to say that you obviously come by this rightfully. Your uh, Grandfather George P. Mitchell, American businessman, developer, and philanthropist, is credited with pioneering the economic extraction of shale gas. So you are a a philanthropist
4: uh, by birth, I guess, right? Yes, I am. I was really lucky to have amazing philanthropic role models in my life. Both my grandparents were really, really philanthropic throughout their entire lifetimes. And obviously, as they were created more wealth, they were able to give away more wealth. And um, they had always believed that the majority of their wealth should go to philanthropy. And um, in 2010, my grandfather joined the giving pledge started by Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett pledging to give the majority of their wealth to philanthropy. So, yes, I um, have done it professionally and also have lived with philanthropy in my life and as role models throughout my life.
1: Well, you've just given great examples because now, over the years, but I think particularly now, the top 1%, for instance, and even the top 2% have been vilified for all the money that they have. And uh, sometimes there's not, it's just, vilified, but not seeing how, what that money can do and what that money does do uh, in a positive way through philanthropy. But Catherine, you've also said that this next generation of philanthropists may be different than, say, your parents or your grandparents' generation, that these philanthropists will give their monies in a different way, perhaps have a different focus or a different agenda. So uh, can we talk about that?
4: Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, that that is very true. The the top 1% has been vilified recently, but philanthropy is a huge part of our culture, particularly in America. You know, the U.S. is not always the, the number one spotter farthest ahead in all areas, but in giving, actually, the U.S. very much um, holds the lead above any other country. We have the most philanthropic um, community and culture. We are, you know, our nonprofit sector is the most advanced, and I believe that's a really... Important reason why we are able to have a functioning democracy, I think civil society and philanthropy is a big piece of that, and you know I think every generation um, is shaped by different things that they live through, different experiences they have, and their philanthropy reflects that. All of us who give money, whether it's $1, $1, $1, $1, $1 billion, it 's one dollar, a million dollars, a billion dollars it's Usually motivated by something internal, something that has impacted us, a passion that we've created at some point in our lifetimes, and so obviously things we live through in different generations um, will shape how we give and what we give to. So whether it was um, the depression, the Great Depression, and World War One and World War Two um, for some of the, the older philanthropists, to younger philanthropists who lived through 9/11 and and other you know tech booms and, the you know, the Great Recession more recently, you know, it does impact what moves us, what, what we see around us, the needs we see around us. And then, of course, I think just being more of a global um, community now, particularly with so many online resources, you can feel like you are in Africa by giving to an organization in Africa, whereas maybe 30 years ago, it was much harder with letters and um, waiting a week to hear what was going on. It felt much farther away. Today, you can feel really connected to some of these issues. Um, And so I think that is also motivating younger donors to, to give more internationally as they feel like the world is so much more connected as well.
1: And I'm assuming that social media has impacted on that a great deal when you talk about this global community. And I, I agree with you. I think that there's a, a greater connection or an ability to connect uh the donors to the persons who are receiving it, whether it's here in the, in this country or around the world. So they, they establish more of a connection. They know where their money's really specifically going to or going for. It's not just writing out a check, but there is more of a connection. Um and well, I, I think there that is a, yeah.
4: Yeah, very true. I mean, and I, there have been some movements, you know, kiva.org was a great example of this where microcredit and micro lending was really starting to boom in the non-profit sector, but Kiva set it up so that you can actually go on and choose which entrepreneur you want to give to and track how they're doing that and how is their small enterprise coming along and really be connected to it. So not just giving a microloan to, you know, quote unquote, somebody in the developing world, but actually connecting to this entrepreneur. And that's one of many examples of just like you say, you just can feel so much more connected and see where that money is going. And I think that's a much more fulfilling experience for most donors.
1: Yeah. You have an emotional stake in it. I mean, it, it's a, it,
4: rather than, as you say, just
1: simply writing a check and having to an organization, a huge organization, but not really knowing specifically who it's going to go to. And I think the millennials and Gen X uh, also uh, are really interested in, in creating social change. That's a big issue. I don't know, is that the same thing with, uh, two generations ago or one generation ago? Because social change is one of those buzzwords, I think, that's really key when you're giving your money or donating your money.
4: Definitely. I think social change is a really big um, reason why young donors are giving and why young donors are not just giving money, but giving time and energy and all the resources they have to try and make an impact in their world. I think that's driven by many things. I mean, you know, I've I've heard and seen um, data that show that this generation is the first that won't necessarily be better off than their parents. Um, you know that that whereas before each generation was um, wealthier wealthier than their parents' generation and better off, this one may or may not be that way. And so, if you're not motivated necessarily um, just by the financial incentives that you know something doing work that you're passionate about and that you care about um, is often just as it's not more motivating so I do do think this generation is working a bit more um, for social change, both in their professional life and in, in what they 're giving to um, and I think that I think the Obama campaign actually was a big piece of this. I think young donors, as we know, um, really swayed that election and it felt and there were so many people who you know it was the one hundred and two hundred dollar gifts online that really helped fund it fund that and I think the young people saw that, wow, my vote counts or my small donation counts and that we as a whole can make a movement and make the changes we want to see. And that's, you know, that goes throughout all of the work that they're doing and all the philanthropy that they're doing. And I think if you look back at at generations before us, they were motivated by different things. So whether... um, you know the the role of the community and the role of um, churches or synagogues or religious institutions were really important for example to particularly to um People who had just come and immigrated to the U.S. And so you'll see generations farther back, um, much more inclined to give to those institutions that had really created a home for them or their families, um, say when they first, when they first arrived in the U.S. And, you know, I'm talking several generations ago. Um, or, you know, I think that my parents' generation, for example, was really influenced by the Vietnam War, um, the civil rights movement. And, and so those things, you know, the kind of lack of trust in institutions actually motivated a lot of their giving to give more to individuals and less to institutions. And so you definitely see these trends by what people are experiencing um, influencing what what they're giving to and how they give.
1: And I think the process of doing it, and I don't want to kind of overlook that, because when you can sit in front of your computer and get all this information about an organization that you might want to donate to and then it's just one click and you can donate, it doesn't make it such a huge endeavor to donate, I mean, it, just the process itself, let's say 20 years ago, you, you had to write a check, you had to mail the check, you had to get your information either talking to somebody on the phone or you had to really avail yourself of the information, you know, in hard copy. This makes it so simple, so easy to do. <laughs>
4: I couldn't agree with you more. It seems kind of silly that that might be a, a motivator. But, yeah, if it's two or three clicks away and you can help an organization, um, that's really easy. And, you, you know, you might just have a day where you think, wow, I want to help somebody or I want to do something or, you know, some, a, 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 you know, an article you might read or something you might see pop up on Facebook and it motivates you and you say, sure, I'll give $50 to that. And, and there's a lot of that. And you're right. That was not so common, I would say, even 10 or 15 years ago.
1: Yeah, and then you can also validate the information because that's, you know, you yes. can look at the statistics. I mean, somebody's saying, you know, that, you, know you, you see a website, they want you to donate, but then you can also go to a lot of other websites and validate it. Well, as somebody who obviously sits on a lot of uh, committees and, and, and a foundation, how do you get people to donate a lot of money when they don't want to uh, or they seemingly don't want to or you feel they don't have enough of the information, like the nitty-gritty of that?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think different things motivate different donors and some people really want to see the impact that it's making and so a lot of it is a, a different pitch to a different person based on what you think their interest is or what they might want to give to. And I also think that giving really brings joy. I mean, I think people who give, they do it because They want to, and there's something that makes them feel good about being a part of an organization or a community that's giving. Um, If someone, you know, really doesn't want to give, I don't think they should. Um, I think they should find something or wait for something they are passionate about and give to. You know, I, I look at it a little bit as things you give to to be a good friend or be a good community member, and then things you give to because you really care about those issues. So if I have a friend who's running a marathon and raising money for an issue I don't care much about, I still support them because I think that that is such an important thing to them and that's about being a good friend to them and supporting the issues they care about. And I'm really grateful that I have many friends who do the same. They may or may not care what I'm fundraising for, but but you know, part of being a good friend and supporting your friends and your community and being good upstanding uh, citizens and helping the issues they care about is about giving to that. Um, so there's that one piece that's about giving for personal reasons and connections and people you know. Um, and then I really encourage people to find organizations that motivate them and issues that they really do care about. And, and not just nonprofit organizations, but sometimes even you know giving politically, finding political candidates um, that might be really interesting to them or help push forward the issues they care about. I think that's equally important because of the role that politicians do play in some of the social change issue and passing some of the legislation that we need in order to to um, you know help some of the nonprofits even so I, I think it 's about finding something that you 're passionate about and getting involved in whatever way feels right for you, whether it 's giving money, giving time, making connections and so i 'd say I just encourage people to do what feels right to them um, and that giving is very personal and can be very fulfilling and so If it's not, then you just haven't found the right place or the right cause.
1: So how do you feel about this? Because I I do agree with you, and I'm a middle-aged person, and now I know what I'm passionate about, and I give for all of those reasons that you just mentioned. But what about when people call you up on the phone and or come to your door and try to convince you to give to an organization that you know you're not interested in? You may feel that it's a great organization that, you know, it behooves, Many people to give to it, but that's not what you choose to give to or whom you choose to give to. So what do you do? Because I, on occasion, not so much now, have had people or convince me that I should give. And then when I either hang up or I write the check and I send it, I don't feel good because I feel like I've been coerced. And that doesn't feel good. you resent it even. Yeah, I resent it. Why did I do that? I, I would like to give this money to somebody else. I know who I want to give it to. So, and that's a scenario that's repeated over and over again. So I think we should address that.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's really important to be honest. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I obviously, like many people, get asked for money for many, many causes, for many reasons. And and I, I think, first and foremost, it, you really need to be respectful in how you say no, um, because the people who are fundraising deeply care about the issue, and like you say, it might be a really important issue. It's just not your issue. Um, But to let them know, you know, your work is fantastic. I really admire what you're doing. It's just not what I'm passionate about. But I do give, and these are the things I do give to and why. And I think letting them know that it's not a personal issue you have with them. It's not that you think their work is not worthwhile, but it's just not the work you're passionate about. Um, and, And doing that in a respectful way, I think um, is is just fine, and fundraisers are used to hearing that, but you know I think the wrong way to go is is to be rude or not call them back or not or just be unresponsive because I think you know they 're just looking to raise funds, and if it, if you 're not a good candidate that they should know that and not waste their time so they can use their time more effectively to raise the funds they need and and you know like you say, you write that check and you feel resentful. Um, that's not a good experience for anybody, and that's not helpful in the end, really, for the foundation for the organization that's fundraising either. So, um, you know, I really encourage people not to give for those reasons, or to give at a level that isn't resentful. So that doesn't make you resentful. So maybe you don't want to give $100, but you're okay actually giving $10 to that organization um, because that's the level you care about it. You know, $10, it's, you know, less than your lunch, but it is something you can give. And so it's, it's better than nothing. That might be a way to do it, that you actually just Le- you give at the level you feel it, its importance is to you. Um, and so 5 $10, it's better than nothing. And maybe say, you know, I'm not interested in giving in the future, but I want to applaud the great work you're doing. Because the, the important part is to let people who know that they're doing a good job and their work is valuable, even if it's not the work you care most about
1: yeah I think that, that that i didn't that is a good example, and I think that organizations that I know in my experience ones that I give to all the time, and rightfully so every year they want you to up the ante, whether it's you know ten dollars five hundred dollars a thousand dollars or more and you have to be i guess as a as somebody who donates their money, maybe it you know, behooves one to sit down and really think about it and, and have a plan. I do actually and write down those organizations that I plan to give so much to and, and, and really put a number on them. Not that they can't be changed, but not do this hit or miss kind of, you know, somebody calling up or wanting money from an organization that I've never given to. So isn't
4: it yeah, maybe a good idea to just have really a plan? Yeah, that was going to say that's exactly what I would recommend and what I do myself is I have my own personal giving plan and I um, I give 10% of my income, so my my salary, I give 10% away and I think through at the beginning of the year how I want to divide that and not necessarily by organization but by category. So I have a few core issues I really care, care about and I give at a certain level for that. Um, and then I have a few organizations that – you know, I know or I have friends on as a part of or whatever, and I care about that and I give that at a smaller level. And then my smallest level are just like I said, you know, the friends that are running the marathon or um, the issues I really don't care about, but I somehow get solicited and and want to make a smaller donation. And so I, I rank those three categories and I have my my limit or number that I want to give away for the year, which is 10% of my salary. And what, what I find actually is that um, – at the end of the year, even though I feel like I've written so many checks, I usually haven't actually bumped up against my 10%, That actually 10% seems to be bigger than you realize on the day-to-day. And so, um, you know, I use 10% because uh, that seems to be a kind of common number that many actually religions promote, um, although that's not what drives me, but um, it's also just it's a number that I think I, I notice it, but it doesn't make a big impact on my life, and so it's not it's not something that I have to make a big sacrifice to do, but it is significant enough that I feel like I can support the organizations I care about. So that explicit plan of this is what I do and don't give to and this is the categories I fall into, it helps me organize my giving. It helps me feel better about my giving. But then it also helps me say no to those organizations I don't want to support, but in a way that's respectful and understanding and planned through, not just kind of a knee-jerk, no, I don't like your work, but rather, no, and this is why. And it, it, it helps the conversation a
1: lot. Yep. Uh, so one's comfort level is very important, obviously, and I think that's what you've been describing. Uh, yeah, I have a few more questions left. Uh, we don't have that much time left, but I was, can you share with us some of the um, in the organizations that you feel passionate about, maybe or issues that you give to or you feel that are concerned, let's say today, um, you are sure. yeah
4: yeah, so I mean I you know during college and right after college, I got really interested in rural development issues, particularly in Latin America. So I founded an organization. I co-founded an organization in 2003, um, working in rural Oaxaca, Mexico, um, around nutrition and agriculture issues. And so, co-founding that organization, it, it actually is in its 11th year this year. And that's an organization I care deeply about. I care deeply about the cause and the people and the communities it works with. And these are some of you know poorest of the poor in the world. Yet only a two-hour flight from Houston, um, where I spend a lot of my time. And so, that's an area I care about, and and I, I fundraise for that organization, and it is um, something that I am deeply passionate about. And you know that's separate than say my family foundation, which is really focused on sustainability issues, really looking at energy and clean uh, clean energy and water issues in Texas specifically, um, and conservation. So I'm involved in some organizations that are really focused on, on those issues, um, but that's very, very different, and so I'd say my own personal passion and drive is a bit more around rural development issues and rural health issues, um, but our Family Foundation focus is on, on the, the energy and water issues, which I think are deeply important. And then another passion of mine is, is actually the sector, the field of philanthropy, and how families do philanthropy well together, how philanthropists can and need to be educated in order to give um, their money away effectively. And while giving money away, writing a check is very easy, having an impact is actually quite difficult. And anybody who's doing this as a job or really trying to have an impact can see that it's not so easy. So I feel really passionately also about helping move the philanthropic sector forward, helping families and individuals do their philanthropy more effectively. So those are some of the issues I care about, and I, I kind of you know, allocate my time and energy and resources across those three issue areas.
1: Well, Catherine, family foundations, let's talk about that, because very often people who perhaps don't have millions and millions of dollars will think that, well, could I set up a family foundation? You know, I'm not Bill Gates, uh, and I'm not Melinda Gates, uh, I'm not Warren Buffett, but I have enough money, and I feel like I want to set up a family foundation. How do I do it? Where do I go? What do I do?
4: Sure, yeah. I mean, family foundations are really interesting, and um, there are something like 70,000 family foundations in the country. So many, many families have foundations at very small levels up to very large levels. Uh, the Gates Foundation is technically a family foundation, but there are family foundations that have, you know, $200,000 in them or something small. Um, you know, obviously, first to start a family foundation, it, I think most people end up talking to their um attorneys and, and accountants to help with the paperwork to set it up. Um, a growing trend in the last decade or so, which I'm a really big fan of, are um, donor-advised funds, and those are um, often set up at a community foundation or, um, you know, other, often a uh, wealth managers and and like Fidelity and Schwab and others have donor advised funds where you can set them up through them. And what's wonderful about those is that you don't often have the um, accounting and legal um, barriers that you do in starting a family foundation. And so different attorneys and accountants will have a different um, perspective, but I'd say if it's less than a couple million dollars, it probably really doesn't make sense to start a foundation legally because, you know, there's an annual cost to keeping it legal. But it does make sense to go to a community foundation and and maybe start a donor advised fund there. And community foundations are really wonderful resources because they're also very knowledgeable about what's going on in the philanthropy world in your area. So they might know organizations that are particularly good to support. They might have services that really help um, the organization, or to help you as a donor understand where you can have an impact or, or how to go about something or learn about an issue. So I think community foundations are a great resource for, f- for people who are just starting to want to be philanthropists or start a fa- family foundation. Um, and, and that's where I would say to begin. Then there are some other wonderful groups that can also be um, helpful to philanthropists, whether there are things called the regional association of grant makers. Often cities will have a regional association of a, of grant makers there where donors are coming together and talking about their region. Um, one of the boards I sit on is, is um was formerly the Association of Small Foundations, but now actually just had a name change and it's called Exponent Philanthropy. And they also do have a lot of good resources for donors and philanthropists um, at all levels. And, you know, and I think also any private wealth manager or um, um, legal or accounting firm also has some good resources. So I think there are many options for people who want to give, but I'm a big fan of starting out with community foundations.
1: Yeah, well, those are the perfect, great examples and uh, very practical examples for for many people. Um, What about cost? You mentioned the word cost way back, but sometimes uh, when one wants to donate their money or donors are considering donating money, they ask those who want the monies to write lengthy essays about why they want the money and, and validate why they want the money, and they spend more time trying to justify why they want the money rather than donating the money to certain groups and using it for what it's supposed to be used for. I don't know if that's clear, but you know, I mean, like there's a lot of, yes, I know
4: exactly what you mean. And it's a big passion of mine to help donors understand why that is not very helpful. Sometimes I I mean, donors as they should really want to make sure that the money, their hard earned money that they're giving away is given away effectively. And is actually going to help the issues they care about. Um, But at the same time, nonprofits, You know, everyone working a nonprofit usually is underpaid and overworked, and they've got so many things going on, and every donor wants different kind of reporting and different information, and they want to see their money went somewhere, you know, and they don't want to pay for salaries, and they don't want to pay the electricity bill and things like that. I'm a really big fan of donors finding an organization they support and then Basically writing the checks to let the organization use that money how they see fit. And realistically, the organization is the best at determining how they use that money. Yeah. Um, you know, they are that, that is they're well said.
1: We have come to, and too quickly, come to the end of the half hour, but, uh, uh, well, there was lots of great, good information. Thank you so much on philanthropy. Uh, love to have you on the show again, Catherine Lorenz. Uh, she is the philanthropy expert, should we say? Um, and <laughs> well, thank you so much. <laughs> well, that's what i call enjoy. you. Yes, enjoy. president of the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation. Um, and again, in uh, 1212, Forbes magazine named one to watch. So we are watching you. But uh, thanks, Catherine, so much for being on the show today.
4: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
1: We are going to say goodbye. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific time on The Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Katherine Zox.